I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to the New Statesman's Hidden Histories podcast, and our new series, The Great Forgetting, Women Writers Before Austin. Episode 5, Fight Club. Who is the most interesting female writer of the 18th century? It's an impossible question, but this week we're going to have fun thrashing it out. You'll hear us make some excellent cases. Sophie Colombo goes for the increasingly miserable novelist Frances Burney. Liz Edwards chose the eventually Hester Thrale Piozzi. And Jenny Batchelor wants to blow our minds by pitching, well, no one. You'll see. First up, Liz Edwards. When Frances Burney asked her friend Hester Thrale if she'd ever been in love, Hester answered her, yes, with myself and most passionately. It's a moment that sums up her voice. Witty, unusual, lively, poised, self-mocking. A personal voice that defines her as a writer. There's no big book by Hester Thrale, later Hester Piozzi, that readers today could pick up in an affordable modern edition. No smash hit novel, no big poem that's been taught on English literature degree courses ever since. Instead, she left a huge number of letters and diaries, written almost daily over the best part of half a century. She's one of the great life writers of literary history. Few people from the period tell tell us quite so much about the constant ups and downs of marriage, motherhood, running a business and a writer's salon, bereavement, falling in love, and especially after the French Revolution, politics and wartime. One of the most humiliating moments in her diaries comes when she has to poultice her wildly unfaithful husband's swollen testicles. On my knees for an hour, Morning and night, she tells us, all the while wondering whether he's infected her too with whatever disease he was suffering from. Some of her most poignant writings are on her painful anxieties for her children. She had 12 and lost eight of them. And her loneliness after the death of her mother, who had been her constant companion. Travelling through Wales in 1774 with her husband, her eldest daughter and Samuel Johnson, who lived with the Thrales for 16 years, she feels broken by having around her nobody but gentlemen, before whom one must suppress everything except the mere formalities of conversation. Here my paper is blistered with tears for the loss of my mother, my friend, my attendant. Who have I now to chat with on the road? Who have I to tell my adventures to when I return? Her journals are full of memorable moments. But she's not just an important life writer. As Hester Piozzi, after her scandalous second marriage to an Italian music master, she was also one of the great innovators in literary form. She was one of the first women to publish works of travel writing and biography. She produced a groundbreaking book of synonymies and a world history in the 1790s. 
her versatility, her ability to pioneer new forms is still just so impressive. However privileged and brilliant she was though, in some ways she's also a voice from the margins of 18th century culture because she was Welsh and her Welshness was important to her. When Joshua Reynolds painted her portrait, she was disappointed with its softness. In these features so placid, so cool, so serene, what trace of the wit or the Welsh woman seen, she asked. Her Welsh identity, the decentered perspective that it gave her, was a source of strength. She felt it made her more than usually resilient, and it marked her out as different from her blue-stocking friends or enemies after her second marriage, as they turned out. Welshness was an essential part of the rebellious streak that made her perhaps a bit dismissive of novels. She never seems to have been particularly tempted to write one and sent her into territory far less familiar to women writers, non-fictional prose, lexicography, a dictionary of names. But because Hester Piozzi wrote in these forms, it makes hearing her voice today that little bit more difficult. We can only get to texts like her life writings through expensive, out-of-print scholarly editions. And yet, modern media offers us all kinds of new opportunities. The drama of her life, captured over decades in her own voice, would translate brilliantly to radio adaptation, for example. And we're hoping that recreating her voice in that way might be the way to make her heard today. That was Liz Edwards making the case for Hester Thrale Piozzi. Uh, and now it's, it's over to you, Sophie, to, to make the case for, for Frances Burney. Thanks, Helen. For me, the most important and interesting woman writer of the 18th century has to be Frances Burney. Novelist, playwright, pamphleteer, and author of 25 volumes of journals and letters. I'm backing Burney first for her innovative, satirical, and sometimes grotesque and disturbing novels. Second, because she led a fascinating life, rubbing shoulders with Dr Johnson in her youth and living to see Queen Victoria on the throne. Moreover, she kindly wrote most of it down for us, leaving over 10,000 pages of juicy information about day-to-day -day life in 18th and 19th century England and France. And third, because despite these facts, the average bookish type still knows next to nothing about her, and I think that needs to change. Burney was born in 1752 into a large and talented family of musicians, scholars and artists. She wrote her first novel at the age of 15, but promptly burned it, terrified that it was unfeminine to write. She had perhaps absorbed the gendered strictures of conduct books, which tended to frown on the idea of female authorship. But the muse wouldn't take no for an answer, and at the age of 26 she published her second novel anonymously. Evelina, or The History of a Young Lady's Entrance into the World, was the story of a young woman looking for Mr Wright and navigating all manner of social embarrassments, and it was a smash hit. Literary London talked of nothing but the mysterious author. Eventually Burney was outed, and was subsequently courted by the most prestigious literary and social circles. Another novel, Cecilia, or Memoirs of an Heiress, was published in 1782. A sweeping, panoramic narrative, full of insanity, suicide, masquerades and burst blood vessels, Cecilia was twice the size, twice the action, and twice the success. Fan mail poured in from Dr Johnson, Edmund Burke and more. Cecilia was the only novel the Queen allowed her daughters to read, and it was enjoyed by Napoleon Bonaparte and George Washington. In the 1780s, Burney incurred the dubious honour of being appointed Lady-in-Waiting to the Queen, 
she loathed court life and was especially unimpressed when George III, suffering from porphyria, chased her through the palace gardens trying to kiss her. On the edge of a nervous breakdown, she quit the job and went to stay with friends, where for the first time in her early 40s, she fell in love. Alexandre d'Arblay was dashing, romantic and loved clever literary women, but unfortunately he was poor, French, Catholic and politically a reformist constitutionalist. This didn't go down well with the conservative Bernies. Francis's rather controlling father, the historian of music Charles Burney, forbade the match, but she married d'Arblay anyway. She then wrote a third novel, Camilla or a Portrait of Youth, and on the proceeds had a house built for herself, her husband and their baby son, which she called Camilla Cottage. If Chicklet met spy fiction, met stream of consciousness in the 1790s, the result would be Camilla. A young fan called Jane Austen loved it, and even fantasised in the margins of her copy about killing off her least favourite character. The autumn of Bernie's life was spent on the continent. She moved to Paris with D'Arblay in 1802, and when war broke out between Britain and France, they were stuck for ten years. While there, she had numerous adventures, not least harrowing of which was a mastectomy without anaesthetic, of which she wrote a full, unflinching account. In 1812, she returned to Britain, and in 1814 published her last novel, The Wanderer or Female Difficulties which was eagerly anticipated by thousands of readers, including Lord Byron and William Godwin. The Wanderer is a bizarre, disturbing, gothic national tale, and, in its own way, a feminist manifesto as searing as Wollstonecraft's vindication of the rights of woman. In other words, well worth the read. Critics hated it, however, and told the world so. The reasons given by one of them, John Wilson Croker, speaks volumes about some of the challenges that faced female writers who dared to aspire to literary genius in the Romantic period. The Wanderer, Croker wrote, has the identical features of Evelina, but of Evelina grown old. The vivacity, the bloom, the elegance are vanished. The eyes are there, but they are dim. The cheek, but it is furrowed. The lips, but they are withered. Croker could accept the novel of a pretty 26-year-old addressing a young lady's entrance into the world, but not the more mature fiction of a woman past 60 concerned with female difficulties. Dispirited by such reviews, Bernie never wrote fiction again. She died in Bath in January 1840. The critics had it in for Bernie even after her death. Her writings influenced Austen, Dickens and Thackeray, but late 19th and early 20th century critics dismissed her work and dubbed her Fanny, a slightly patronising nickname if you ask me. Do we refer to Georgie Byron and Willie Wordsworth? <laughs> Luckily, the sterling work of feminist critics since the 1970s has resuscitated Bernie's reputation. Her novels represent a bridge between the 18th century picaresque and the romantic quest to express interiority. They pioneer innovative literary techniques such as free and direct discourse. They give us an unrivalled window into 18th century life, its fears, anxieties, pleasures and pains. Finally, they make a staunch argument for the validity and significance of female difficulties. And this last fact, I think, is both the most compelling argument for Bernie's importance and the reason why she fell victim to the great forgetting. Thank you, Sophie. Um, Jenny, you're going to have to run this one by me. You've picked Anonymous, haven't you? I have indeed. So go on, make your, make your pitch. Okay. I want to make a plea for the best woman writer you've never heard of. 
Actually, you probably will have heard of her, and I bet you've read some of her best-known works. You probably just know her by a different name. Eliza Haywood, maybe, Charlotte Lennox, Sarah Scott, Charlotte Smith, Frances Burney, Mary Wollstonecraft, Mary Shelley, and uh, what's her name? Ah, yeah, Jane Austen. These women wrote novels, poetry, essays, reviews, political polemics, and translations. Their subjects and their politics differed greatly. But they and many like them had at least one thing in common. Some, and in some cases all of the work they authored, was published anonymously. Yet anon, that most prolific woman writer remains a four-letter word. We find it difficult to talk about anonymous texts. Publishers today need named authors, as I know from an only eventually successful long-haul effort to get an important anonymous 18th century novel into a modern edition without hazarding an attribution I couldn't be sure of. As historians and teachers of women's writing, we share publishers' worries. We need heroines for our stories. We want to recover authors' often extraordinary lives with their works. And let's be honest, Anon rather embarrasses us in her apparent deference to the demand that women should not lead public lives. Better to write, as Jane Austen was described by her nephew, in secret, protected in her home by a creaky door hinge that warns against intruders and in print by the cloak of anonymity. Modesty certainly informed some female authors' decisions to publish anonymously. Often, though, this was a convenient fiction we've been told to conceal the fact that women wrote because they needed to get their husbands out of debtors' prison, feed their children, or because they had talent or, God forbid, professional ambition. The Jane Austen, whom her nephew remembered as pathologically secretive about her writing, was described by one of her nieces, Marion Knight, sitting quietly with her needle, in company, before bursting out laughing, jumping up to the table, grabbing a pen and scribbling frantically on one of her novels before returning to her hoop. This story should be told more often. Modesty is perhaps the biggest red herring in women's literary history. It says so much more about our gendered assumptions than about the writers who are our subjects. After all, many 18th century male writers published anonymously, but we don't think of Daniel Defoe or Samuel Richardson as being demure. Anonymity was the norm of 18th century publication, not a deviation from it. James Raven has shown that that 80% of new novels published between 1750 and 1790 were published without their authors' names. Anonymity was widespread in other genres too. In periodicals like the Ladies' Magazine, which we spoke about in a previous podcast, Unsigned or pseudonymous publication was the rule of thumb, its pages full of anons, nobodies, R's, AZs. Some of these authors, like Gothic novelist Mrs Kendall or translator Radagunda Roberts, had successful careers beyond the magazine. Their works travelled the globe in reprintings and translations. Those who didn't were still read by thousands, perhaps as many as 15,000 a month, at a time when the average novel print run was just 750 copies. Some of my work is devoted to uncovering these authors' identities, but most, I know, will never be identified. To discount their works on the basis of their anonymity, or because we assume their authors didn't take writing seriously enough to put their name on it, is unjust. It's to take a 21st century hang-up from a time when it's somehow newsworthy that the unknown author who goes by Elena Ferranti has made the Batman Booker shortlist, and impose those assumptions about what an author is and apply it to a time when the relationship between author and work was much more complex and, frankly, to my mind, much more interesting than it is now. 
Anon is the most important figure in women's literary history, arguably in literary history full stop. She has long been misunderstood and she's undoubtedly a tricky customer, but that's why she's so important. Anonymity was not, in the main, a veil or shield for 18th century women writers. It, not signed authorship, was simply the default position. The odd thing is not that so many women published anonymously in the 18th century, but why so many did that very strange thing and actually put their names on their writing. When we realise this, we can see anonymity not as a sign of deference, but as a position of privilege. The privilege of the outsider, to borrow Virginia Woolf's phrase. The privilege to question long-held assumptions, including assumptions about what it means to be a woman and to be a writer in the 18th century, or indeed any century. Thank you, Jenny. That's see that you. I was I was fully paid up with Bernie, and then <laughs> and then now I think well no that is actually a very good point. But um I mean I had I had I failed to do my homework on this one. But my pitch was going to be for Mary Wortley Montague for a couple of reasons because I think that there is um there is a problem when we talk about these kind of great authors or you know who gets remembered in canonicity about needing to have a kind of body of work you know one of the reasons that bernie endures is because there you can see that she's got a coherent corpus you can see progression through it you can see some of the same themes coming up whereas it's very difficult for somebody who dabbles a bit of this and a bit of that and you know and not very much survives mm. that you kind of don't you don't you know you it's actually what survives of you is kind of more your your image your brand or whatever you know what you represent right mm. um so in a way you know Hannah Moore you kind of go mm, yeah dreary conduct literature but that's kind of she owns dreary mm. conduct literature mm. um it's it's tougher for people who have much more fragmentary histories I think that brand idea is really important and ties in a lot with what Jenny was saying um I couldn't agree more that what is noteworthy is not anonymity but the occasion when a woman signs her name. Um, Jenny has written on this uh, wonderfully on, on the kind of branding that, that women, some women use in order to cultivate that sense of self, in order to self-fashion in, in academic parlance. Um, and it's not, only, it's not only naming, there's also frontispieces, aren't there? Mm-hmm. This controlling of an image. Um, Charlotte Smith likes to portray herself as being terribly crushed under the... the slings and arrows of misfortune um, and to publish a little kind of epigraph on on the portrait of her that I can't remember exactly what it says. Oh, at times sorrow, it's uh, times sorrows writing themselves on her face. Yes. And you've got that wonderful kind of in- stippled engraving. Exactly. Makes, so it's clear her, her suffering words. is so Written key. on her body. Yes. Yeah. Her, her suffering is so key to her brand um, because, you know, that, that's how she on some level wants her readers to relate to her. But, but interestingly, you know, you can still have a kind of brand and be anonymous. So for instance, Jane Austen, I mean, her names don't get put on her novels until, um, well, her two posthumous novels are published and her family authorises her name to be put on them. So the only Austen novels that appeared with her name on them in the first editions were Northanger Abbey and Persuasion because they're published after her death. But, you know, uh, after she publishes Sense and Sensibility, you know, her, her subsequent, you know, Pride and Prejudice is published as by the author of Sense and Sensibility. Nobody except outside the Austin family knows it's Jane Austen, but there's still a brand being created, even even within the confines of, of anonymous publications. So there are ways in which branding can still happen. But I mean, but the, I mean, the problem with biography, of course, is that it, it whilst people like Charlotte Smith, for instance, were incredibly shrewd and strategic and, and tried very very hard to manage their self-image, that of course it can run away from those writers and it did for Smith as for many others very quickly and we talked in a previous podcast about Mary Wollstonecraft and how her life comes and really 
fundamentally skews the way in which it's possible to read her works after the publication of her husband's biography of her in, in 1798. So I think biography is a real problem for women writers. Their lives are extraordinary. We need to know about them. We want to know about them. And yet they so get in the way of what we read. And we should probably also talk about genre because one of the things mm. that is, is an issue for Piozzi and is an issue for Montague is that they're working in formats that are kind of liminal. They're not... I mean, you know, in the case of Montague, you know, she's an excellent letter writer. Lots of her letters ended up getting burned. But, you know, they were intended for kind of private circulation among a pretty limited group. That's much, that's, it's sort of strange to line that up against somebody who was a novelist who mm. attempted to be read as by as many people as possible, or even against epic poetry, a very you know, masculine, very prestigious form. I think you're absolutely right. And I think this is something that, you know, was there in Liz's excellent pitch for Piozzi. Um, she's an innovator. It's very hard to describe what she does. Mm. She's not a novelist. She writes poetry, but she's not a poet. She writes travel writing. She writes letters and Arna, Thraliana, her, her most famous work is called, which is anecdotes and snippets and puzzles and word games. Um, now, this has tended to work to her great forgetting. You know, we find it hard to describe what she is. Um, it's an interesting question. Would it be the same if it was a man? Um, you know, we have, for example, Tristram Shandy, which sort of is a novel sort of is is something far more innovative than that. But I also think maybe if someone like Samuel Johnson, mm. who sort of survives through Boswell's life of him mm-hmm. and through becoming a kind of a kind of avatar for a certain kind of cranky pedant, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I guess as a woman you don't kind of get lionised as a cranky pedant No but I mean it, Johnson's a really interesting person to mention in that context because you know you, again you're remembering the life rather than his, his works he, and that's partly because um, you know he wrote one novel and it was very short it was called Rasselas but he mainly wrote periodicals Oh I just had a flashback to that um, it wasn't, yeah. wasn't great was it? Well, Are you going to defend Rasselas? Is that uh, what's going to happen? It's now? An, I won't it, it's, it's, it's interesting <laughs> Uh, but it's it's very short. I mean, he may you know mostly he he wrote for periodicals, for instance, and he wrote, you know he wrote some poetry and he wrote for play and so forth. Um, so again, he's a sort of problematic career made whole by Boswell's life. But that's interesting, isn't it? Because that's and it also speaks to stuff that is overly contemporaneous versus things that is presumed to speak to more universal themes. So. Uh, you know, it's easier for novels about something like Evelina, say, or Pride and Prejudice to transcend the age that they're in because there is a universal theme. It's a lot harder for the new Atlantis to, which we just don't understand. Which is so very topical. You don't understand who anyone is anymore, but we can't reaccess that, you know, that what it was like when that, that first came out. Mm. It's 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 certainly very difficult to 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 access that, and in that way, then the, the life gives us a very helpful purchase on that. If we can understand more about Manly, and I mean she was an extraordinary figure, why wouldn't we want to know about her? Then you know it becomes that it becomes that much more interesting. Um, but I think you know we do get very hung up on the novel. Um, you know, even 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 above even above poetry. Although Smith's a kind of interesting example because her poetry is arguably much better known now than her than her novel writing. But if you're talking about you know you were talking about the novel and the popularity. I mean, Bernie's a phenomenally popular, commercially successful novelist in the period. But you know, Sense and Sensibility has a print run of 750 copies. No one may have heard of Radagunda Roberts except me. In fact, we only discovered her genuine identity just a couple of weeks ago. It's on an this project that I'm, that I'm It's an astonishing name. I think, who knows why nobody else could find her before her before us with such an extraordinary name. It's hardly like we're tripping over Radagundas. But, you know, we found her. And, you know, 
if we're right about the circulation of, of the ladies magazine for instance it's very possible she was being read in her thousands every month in a in a, what is now considered to be an utterly minority genre a translation in a periodical but was having much greater reach than Jane Austen's first novel. <laughs> but I thought you, I mean, you said this in an article, Jenny, for, about the ladies' magazine, is because the archive has never been drawn together, it's in lots of different places, it wasn't digitised until very recently. Actually, you can't build up a kind of scholarly head of steam around that. That's so right. So that, that helps, doesn't it, that if you're writing ephemera, if you're writing in magazines or letters or anything like that, it's just much harder to pull everything together. It is harder, but, it is, but, it, but it's possible. And I think one of the really exciting things to me about, about um, digital technologies uh, today is that we are we are able to pull together materials and make it accessible not just to you know our students and, and to academics but to all people who might be interested in this material through through websites through digital editions and so forth where things can be easily searched and sifted through and different things brought together and also multimedia as well I think is is really very important for this so um, I'm very optimistic actually that um, you know so, some of that we can we can start to draw works together in new ways through new digital platforms that aren't solely reliant on having an author's life as the peg on which we hang a particular um, body of work together. Mm -hmm. And were you convinced by Sophie's pitch for Frances Burney? Well, I adore Frances Burney. And Sophie's pitch was wonderfully eloquent. And I mean, mean, Burney has probably the most extraordinary life story of any woman writer in the 18th century. The mastectomy letter that she referred to. I mean, her novels are brilliant. But if 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 you really, really want to be bowled over by a piece of writing, read the mastectomy letter. It took her six months to write because it was such a traumatic experience that she'd endured. Read it. I I defy anybody not to be profoundly moved by that. She was an incredibly skillful writer. And one of the most extraordinary things about that is she survived for a long time after that mastectomy. It was was a successful piece of surgery without anaesthetic. It was, despite how utterly primitive and horrifying it is to read about actually what happens which she, she's conscious throughout she describes mm-hmm. absolutely she describes what the knife feels like cutting against the grain through the tendon and muscle um you know it's just it's it's absolutely horrific but yes she she survives and she lives to a ripe old age she's i think 80 odd when she dies that seems to me to be a real mark of a true writer is that she can't switch off that little part of her brain that is constantly somewhere slightly outside of herself thinking how am I going to write about this afterwards? I mean she's a compulsive recorder, Mm. 10,000 pages and we keep discovering Bernie stuff, it's still not Mm. all been found, of life writing about the tiny minutiae of her day to day life it's extraordinary. Now, I'm, I'm probably, I'll be told off, this is probably an intensely hashtag problematic question to ask, but how much of your choices um, and, and the writers that you like to write on is based on ones that you like as people? I know you've mentioned, Jenny, already this problem of overly associating women with their biography. I mean, for me, I, you know, the writers that I really love are ones who I feel have an outlook that I, you know, I, I, I maybe it's not because it's happening in a very different scenario, but that you think you know, are good people to be around if you want to spend time with them. I feel I feel that that has absolutely shaped so much of the work I've done and so much of what I've read in the past that I've I've been I've been drawn to the Wollstonecrafts and not the Hannah Moores. I mean, that's part of the problem with Hannah Moores we talked about in a previous podcast that it's it's you know if you if 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 your politics lean in a particular direction, it's not terribly easy to get a kind of handle on on Hannah Moore. For me, one of the truly exciting and liberating things about working on the magazines I work on is I don't I don't have that kind of entry point often with the material and personally 
in the initial stages, I find that quite uh, difficult and I found it quite sort of disorienting. And now I find it profoundly liberating because I can work with words and I can work with text and I can work with argument. And I'm not, I, do, I don't feel shackled by biography. And it's, for me, it's wonderfully liberating, actually. Most 18th century writers, male and female, would probably quite be quite horrible to have a drink with. Uh, <laughs> I think I, I think we I can't like get away from Samuel that. Richardson would be the kind of guy who would tell you in like really long detail about his printing business and Definitely. the new like spigot he'd got in his Definitely. and you'd be and you'd be like well actually the thing is I got a fifteen millimeter one yeah. and actually that was a real improvement over the fourteen millimeter one and you'd be sort of sitting there quietly yeah. hoping for death. Lawrence Stern would have been constantly bombarding you with selfies. <laughs> he absolutely would. Um, Johnson, oh, can John, you imagine. And the thing is, I just don't get me started. On Johnson. Johnson would have been one of those people who invites you to dinner and it's just two hours of listening to them speak, right? Absolutely. Yes. Um, I think, you know, even Wollstonecraft, we take Wollstonecraft as our standard for, oh, you'd love to have a pint with Mary Wollstonecraft. Not all of her views were particularly savoury, to be honest, in today's climate. So um, give me an example. Well, say, for example, in um, Vindication of the Rights of Women, there's some very, hashtag problematic, um, stuff about class in there. Mm. There's some very, very, very sniffy stuff about women of a lower class. There's a kind of exceptionalism for Mary Wollstonecraft about Mary Wollstonecraft. Um, she's, in some respects, she's she's not very nice about women, which obviously seems completely counterintuitive. I think that seems... To, I mean, that's one of the things that characterises the work of Jermaine Greer as well, I'd say. Another... Who I see is kind of the closest thing to Mary mm -hmm. Wollstonecraft in that she just doesn't seem to have a lot of regard for propriety. Yeah. And those people who just steamroll us straight through social barriers, mm -hmm. one of the reasons they often do that is they don't have a great regard for niceties, for whether mm -hmm. or not people like them, people yeah. think they're nice. And actually what makes them... You know, Andrea Dawkins another example. Mm -hmm. What makes them such you know clear singing out kind of re refreshing writers to read probably also makes them in real life mm -hmm. you know the kind of person who just jabber a lot not use the right cutlery say some uh, you know sort of slightly off color things that you'd kind of think well actually, I can actually I'm not going to have the fight because every time I try and disagree with you you're quite scary I think you're you're absolutely right um relating to the 18th century I mean I just start from the point of look there's going to be a lot of unpalatable stuff about this writer Francis Burney and Hester Thrale Piozzi who are kind of my two faves um both have absolutely horrible views about some things um they're politically very conservative in in a number of ways but you get you get past that and you kind of get to know um, because these are women with extensive biographical material available, which is the opposite of, of mm. what you were saying, Jenny. Mm. You sort of get to know them and you develop this sense of them as incredibly complex, rounded individuals. A caricature is not good enough. You can't really caricature Bernie and Thrail Piozzi because they are so complex, so self-contradictory. Um, Bernie is capable of, you know, personally espousing the most conservative views about a woman's place. And yet her fiction is underwritten by this absolute fury about women being restricted in various ways and about female difficulties. But I think that's also kind of necessary corrective for the modern left liberal, you know, do-gooder progressive reader, which is about trying to accept people within the context that they were writing mm -hmm. in. And, and then actually some a level of humility in yourself of thinking, actually probably in a hundred years time there are some views that I hold that will probably come to, yeah. that will be completely unfashionable and, out, and outdated. And, and we need to restore these women to their... Their, their correct place in history, you know, and, and, and as you say, they are both, you know, of their time. And also there are a, a mixture of influences and opinions and, 
and directions and currents that flow through them. And, mm-hmm. and, and most people aren't the same person in lots of different situations as well, which I think mm. is something that literary biography kind of struggles mm. to, to bring back is that, you know, the, the same person is not the same to their children as they are to their partner as they are at work, or whatever. Uh, and, and, and that can get abraded out when we when we kind of canonize. And again, to go that back to that idea where people become a brand, you kind of mm. imagine that Jane Austen is one way. Uh, and, oh. and then maybe she was on some days, like as most people are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, have we come to a conclusion about? Have, have we all decided to to agree with each other? No. Or, or are you going <laughs> to stick with your guns? I think Jenny's um, argument is perhaps the most. Con- Life is full of awesome what ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff: shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. It's certainly the most cutting edge. It certainly is the one that I think makes us think in... Uh, a different way about authorship. She's got fifty percent of writers. She does indeed, century, you so know. And she's kind of played she's the odds also, on that one. She's also got Bernie in there, so and she's Austin, kind of arguing for Bernie and so. Smith because <laughs> Manon Lescaut was published. I, I would happily give the crown to Jenny. So there we go. So the best, the most interesting female writer of the eighteenth century was most of them. <laughs> <laughs> Thank That's you very much, Sophie and Jenny. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to the New Statesman's History Podcast, Hidden Histories, presented by me, Helen Lewis, and produced by India Burke. Our music is John Baptiste Lully's Gavotte, performed by Thrax, and is licensed under Creative Commons. For more information about the writers and works discussed in this programme, visit newstatesman.com forward slash podcast. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me geeky palmer let's wake up those taste buds with hot juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi mm. hello fresh stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at hellofresh.com let's get this dinner party started 